I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Over the last few weeks, the Times war correspondent, Anthony Lloyd, has been back in Ukraine. He was reporting on the state of the war, three months on from the counteroffensive that finally launched in June. But he also met troops who were far away from the counteroffensive skirmishes along the war's 600-mile front line, running patrol missions. Today, we're bringing you one story from one night of Anthony's trip. To protect the identities of the troops, we can't tell you when he visited or where exactly they were, but we can tell you what it was like standing behind a young captain watching the best laid plans go horribly awry. trying to be kind of logical and think about what it was that I could actually learn or discern from watching what was going on. And so I thought about this, some sort of half-remembered quote I had from Ernest Shackleton about the loneliness of command as I was looking at this young captain. And then there was that other truism of war, which is not even the best plan, survives contact with the enemy. All that was kind of going on in my head, but basically I was just left with this thought that this, this awful intimacy in being with strangers, watching the deaths of their friends. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, one night on the front line. Hello, I'm Anthony Lloyd, and I've just returned from my latest assignment in Ukraine. And Anthony, I mean, you've been going back and forth to Ukraine ever since before the start of the war. Just tell us a bit about your latest trip, because you you stayed with a particular patrol group. Tell us about your time with them. Just start at the beginning. How did you find them, and, and where were they? So this was a special reconnaissance unit, and they were based in southern Ukraine. I can't go exactly into their location because it would be slightly unfair, but in the area of the city of of Kherson, 
which was taken not that long ago in relative terms from the Russians. It was liberated by the Ukrainians and it has experienced a lot since as a city, almost daily shelling, uh, but also the flood, which listeners might remember earlier this year in the summer when the Russians blew up the Kokovka Dam, which was upstream uh, on the Dnipro River. This unit were based in the area of Kherson, and one of their jobs was to conduct raids and reconnaissance patrols the other side of the river Dnipro, which is the other side, the east bank, is held by the Russians. There are very few Ukrainian bridgeheads there, marshy lands, a lot of flood damage, a lot of fallen trees, quite a lot of vegetation. And so they're going in, they're trying to explore, find out where Russian positions are, and from time to time, raid those Russian positions or take out Russian outposts. So, I mean, this is a, a key area, Kherson. It has, since the war began, it's went to the Russians, it's back with the Ukrainians. But as you say, the fighting is live on either side of the river. How did you manage to, to follow this patrol group? How did you manage to meet them? It all happened very quickly. I was traveling with a friend, Ukrainian friend. She was a friend of the commander of the patrol group. And we had a brief conversation. And by coincidence, he said, look, I've got a mission going. And he didn't really tell me what it was, but he said it'll involve driving along the riverbank for a way. And some of my guys are, uh, are going in the other side of the river. And do you want to come? We can take one. <laughs> so I thought, how badly can this all go after all? I mean, not that that stopped him and his guys as they were driving off on the river with me saying, I really hope you don't get killed because if you do, we're going to have to dump your body in the river. You're not really supposed to be here. Just give us a sense of what the fighting is like in this area. You know, this isn't sort of big tank battles. What exactly were they planning that night? So, yeah, this is not the area of the counteroffensive which is still in southern and southeastern Ukraine, but it's a good deal. It's, you know, way, way north of where this this was. This is almost the Kherson Delta War. It's where almost where the, the Dnipro River enters, falls out into the Black Sea. So there's not only the width of the river, but there's lots and lots of islands, and some of them several miles long within this river mouth. Predominantly, the Ukrainians have the initiative in this area in that they are launching more raids into the Russian zones than the Russians are into the Ukrainian zones. But commonly, they will put boats across at night, little speedboats. It can be a reconnaissance patrol, can be setting up an observation point in a concealed position to watch Russian movements or occasionally a fighting patrol, a group of raiders who will go off and hit a particular place. In some areas, the river's a few hundred meters wide. Overall, the flood levels are somewhat reduced since the Kokovka Dam went. But in other areas, it's just like 100 meters wide because there's a big island in between you know, one side, West Bank and East Bank. When you set off with this patrol group, what were you expecting their mission to be? What were you expecting to pay out? So the actual beginning bit starts off, you know, with a bit of time for some chat. There's me and, and the commander and one other guy in a vehicle, we're driving not more than two hours up along the western side of the Dnipro River. This is the Ukrainian side to his command post. This is a command post from which he will run the operation. 
uh, without giving too much away. I was fair enough to say the command post was a kind of totally anonymous little farm building, little farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. Mm. There's no antennas on it, nothing like that. The vehicle's parked somewhere else. We go in, there are some soldiers there, and it, it's not a big house. It, 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 it's small. And there, the loose outline of the plan, which I'm slightly uh, hesitant to describing it in total detail, but basically a couple of very small groups of Ukrainian soldiers are going to be put across the other side of the river onto the bank of one of these islands. This island is is not small. It's a couple of miles long. There's been fighting on it before. There are known to be significant Russian forces on this island. His guys are going to be inserted there at night in a speedboat, not to go and fight the Russians, but just to check out where they are. There are a, a very few friendly forces already on the island. There's a very small group of or well, two of Ukrainians already there. So this is this is an intelligence gathering mission. It's an intelligence gathering mission, yeah, commonly known as the kind of wrecking patrol. All these operations are linked up almost always by drones. So this officer is in his late twenties, he's a captain, he's going to be running the operation from this little farmhouse on a very small amount of kit, a kind of laptop and a tablet and a and a radio. And he's only got three or four guys with him. And the rest of the guys are going to go across the river, not that far, establish themselves the other side, hide up until the dawn, and then they'll start that patrol to find out you know, where the Russians are. And so he gives me the outline of the plan, says, well, look, nothing much is going to happen for a few hours. You can go to sleep. That wasn't, <laughs> this is like wooden boards. I sat, I lay, lay on these boards and thought, yeah, I can manage this. And it was silent for a minute. And then all these mice came out, not just one or two, but like the room was crawling with mice. And the mice running over my feet and my legs. And and, and it's kind of like I was not much to worry from mice, but it's just, I don't know, it was, it was uneasy. And then the soldiers make a particular sound when they're moving about a building at night. So trying not to make that much noise, but they're all carrying weapons. There's something clanks. And then there's someone's got heavy footfalls and they open a door and they're trying to be quiet. They're not really quiet. Anyways, there wasn't much sleep, but I was quite keen to see what was going on. So I wasn't that bothered. I didn't want to miss out on too much. But sure enough, then at some point in the dead of the night, the soldier came and roused me and said, hey, it's just, the patrol's just about to set off. So I go into the little room, which is being used, particularly as the ops room. The captain's at the table. He's got his laptop. He's got his tablet. He's got his handset. There's a couple of guys there. So I sat on the stool behind him and looked. And you could see this small group of Ukrainian soldiers crouched low in this speedboat. You know, very, very clearly, the drone's got thermal optics on it. So you can see, you know, exactly. They're not like ant figures. They're like, you know, they're like soldiers. You're looking at soldiers in a boat. What sort of time is this? It would be unfair for me to say exactly what time it was, because I think there was a concern afterwards that, bearing in mind what does happen, they don't want the exact details of, of where or when their guys go out in case there's a chance that later the Russians cross-match it with their own thoughts of what happened in the operation that night and it in some way serves their ability. So I'm going to be pretty frank and open about what did happen and describe what I saw, but I think it would be, um, it was the dead of night. It was the dead of night, but I could see pretty clearly what was going on on this um, drone and listen to it by radio. So two small groups end up going across and you can see them the other side. It's amazing how both sides have evolved in the war. As soon as they got the other side, they pull themselves into cover. And that's literally, they pull any amount of foliage on them until they have no heat trace at all. 
because both mm. sides have got so wised up in the last 16 months as to what happens if you leave any of your body exposed enough to leave a heat trace to any thermal optics on a drone, you're going to get bombed. So, you know, they were really diligent about that. It was quite interesting how quickly they did it and how efficiently they did it. And you're watching this from this farmhouse come command centre. What's the atmosphere like at this stage? Focused, but relaxed. It's something I I think it's really important to describe in describing this and what happens next. This is very, very familiar. I mean, the front line in, in Ukraine is around 600 miles long. And there are patrols going out of different descriptions all up and down that front line, day and night of different descriptions. So these guys are quite familiar with their operations. They were a professional group of guys. Captain was a you know professional soldier. He wasn't someone who had been new, newly mobilized and was working in a bar a couple of weeks ago. On the contrary, he'd been a soldier for years. And I believe that most of those going the other side were pretty experienced guys as well. So that's what I saw. First of all, they hid themselves. The atmosphere in the room is is calm. I mean, you know, there's assault rifles there and everything like that, but they're not expecting to be attacked on their side of the bank. So then there's a lull and nothing much happens in the final hours of darkness. However, then you get to a key time to move, which is the grey light between night and kind of pre-dawn. And it makes optics a little bit more difficult for drones, particularly thermal optics, because they're not quite adjusted either to darkness or, or, or to light. And then you see at that point, soldiers come out of cover, these little glowing guys, and they form up and they set off. You can hear the chat at the beginning, quite encouraging. They found one little bit of equipment, which didn't mean much. Then they find a dead Russian soldier. And it seemed to be that the message from that was probably positive and that if there's a dead Russian soldier here, it means that the actual Russians they're looking for, the live ones, must be quite far away. And so the patrol moves forward. But as it happens, the other Russians were not a distance away. Coming up, dawn breaks and chaos erupts. That's in just a moment. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Anthony, this patrol has gone out. It sounds like things are going well. They've seen the body of a Russian. They think that's a good sign. What happens next? So suddenly, there's the noise that makes everybody sit up and every ops, ops from around the world when an operation's going down. The radio crackles, you get the word contact in Ukrainian and bursts of assault rifle fire and PKM machine gun fire behind this voice. You can tell the speaker is, you know, he's keyed, he's tense, contact, far fight. And you see it on the screen, the uh, the fighters scatter. And what's happened is the first two guys, they're on point, they're like the scouts, they have stumbled almost right upon a significant concealed Russian position. So the first two guys are almost upon it when the Russians, in greater numbers than the patrol may add, open fire on these first two guys they see. Both of them go down, badly wounded, alive but badly wounded. The rest of the patrol are then in contact, heavy, heavy fire. So the atmosphere in the in the ops room is absolutely, you know, electrified. The captain is uncertain whether the two guys who are injured, and he can see them, they are calling on their radios, hey, there's a route to come and drag us out of here. The captain's uncertain whether they're saying that off their own volition or whether the Russians are only just in front of them in position, you know, shell scrapes in, in, in trenches, are saying to them, call that out on your radio, we're going to kill you because they want the other Ukrainians lured forward so they can be shot up. Yeah, so there's this whole dynamic playing down in the ops room as to, is there really a safe is route? It a uh, yeah, is it a trap? As the rest of the patrol move up, and try and get these guys back. One of them's then killed. And you hear, we've got a cargo 200, which is, you know, we've got a death on the radio. Cargo 200's dead, cargo 300's wounded. So they've got two seriously wounded who can't move. Then they've got a, you know, one of the soldiers now being killed. What they have got then, they've got a backup team of another small group of guys in a speedboat, ready elsewhere to come in. But then suddenly you hear the boat's hit and the boat's being you know, drill with machine gun fire and I think a couple of mortar rounds too, mid-river. And then you see, you know, the drone footage, see the boat just listless there with a whole lot of unmoving soldiers in it, all of them hit. And this so often happens in war, something that's going, seems to be going well. Very, very suddenly it changes. There's such a quick difference between everything going smoothly, the first bullet going down, and then a shitstorm. And that's what's happening. It was very, very strange to be with this these few guys in this ops room. It was like an ops room. It's a room in a farmhouse. Who know exactly their people on the screen. I mean, they know, they know them as individuals. The shouts on the radio, I mean, I can't even describe the hair goes up on my arms according to them now. You've got, you know, 
bursts of fire, guys trying to extract themselves. And yet at the same time, you've got this captain that's suddenly reminding me what a kind of lonely position men and women in command can often find themselves, that so much is on his shoulders. He's sitting there at a table yeah. with a hideously complex problem going on. And it's really down. Also not knowing if it's a trap. Not really. knowing it is a trap. He can't leave you, you know, does he leave his wounded guys there? Maybe that's one option. Just, you know, he's given the order break from the far fight, but he needs to get these wounded guys back. And a lot of effort is put into that. Finally, the captain starts directing his fire over the Russian positions and giving them quite a thumping, which did allow the teams all tangled up in that far fight to, to extract, by which time they've got dead and wounded. And at some point when this final highly sensitive extraction began, the captain said to me, Anthony, I'm going to have to ask you to leave at this point. There were some things which were going to happen which they, they um, preferred me not to see. By that point of 15 guys involved in the patrol, you had six dead and five wounded. Some of those dead weren't dead outright, they were mortally wounded and died within the next day and a half. It was a very strange experience to be sat in that room watching, you know, I've seen any amount of drone footage in my life and some terrible things going down on drone footage, but this was very intimate because yeah. I was with a very small group of men, including the commander of this operation, watching, not that far across the other side of the bank, people he knew engaged on this operation and then seeing it go so horribly wrong. This was not an unusual situation. This is the nature, I think, having been and, and seen campaigns before in Afghanistan and Iraq, where casualties from time to time for coalition forces or British forces could be heavy. Those incidents were cyclical, whereas in the war in Ukraine, you've got this huge war of a massive scale, and those involved look out and patrols the whole time. It sounds acute and dramatic to describe, but for those participating, that is the normality of their life in this war now. And, you know, you say this is a regular occurrence now, you know, that's one horrific night. But if this is happening all the time, what should we make of the state of the war? You know, I mean, it wasn't that long ago, back in spring, we had great hope for the spring offensive. We were then told it had been delayed, it was coming in the summer. We're now in autumn. How are the Ukrainians doing and how is the war going? I think there is a general acceptance or certainly an awareness in Ukraine that this conflict is going to go on for an extremely long time. There is no quick route out of it. It is not impossible for Ukraine to win, but it will take a lot of investment and a lot of support from Ukraine's Western partners that has been slightly patchy in coming at present. And by which I mean, you know, Ukraine has received a huge amount of support from the West, but there's often a, a great delay between a commitment to give them tanks or a commitment to give them arms and those weapons actually approaching. And there is a very common feeling amongst Ukrainian forces and the greater Ukrainian population that they're being given enough not to lose, but not being given enough to win. 
I don't like to make predictions, but I would say pretty confidently that there's almost no chance that the much billed spring offensive, which actually started in the summer, will not get anywhere near its hoped objectives in severing the Russian armies in the south by the time the rains come in autumn. There is another logic which is saying that, well, Ukraine is being quite, you, you shouldn't measure it in terms of how much ground's penetrated, but in Ukraine's ability to attrit, which is an awful word, it basically means destroy key Russian you know, troop units and equipment. And there's no doubt that Ukraine is causing heavy casualties through its own firepower, through its artillery. But the Russians have also inflicted a huge amount of damage on Ukraine's forces. And the soldiers, yeah. units you fight now, it's quite rare, like in the case of this patrol, to have so many experienced soldiers there. Basically, the Ukrainian regular army of pre-2022 has been worn away by fighting. The second generation, which was an army of mobilized reservists, these were Ukrainian men who had had previous experience, who were then mobilized in the army, that has been heavily degraded. We are looking at a third generation Ukrainian army, and this is in the space of since you know February last year, which is now mobilized civilians, which is essentially conscripted males, who are the kind of third generation. Now, that's an awful lot of people to have got through in a very small space of time. Certainly, Ukrainian military leadership is looking now at how to widen mobilization. We're hearing that in October, the mobilization eligibility will be widened to some professions in the female population, but also, you know, extended yeah. into elements of society wouldn't have been called up before. For example, people with HIV, they will now be eligible for the army for mobilization on the 1st of October. We're looking at a very big war. It's going to go on for a very long time. How do you think morale is? I mean, you said they're going to extend the pool of people they're calling up to fight. Do people want to go? Politically, there doesn't seem any opposition voice inside Ukraine challenging Zelensky on, hey, how much longer do you want to fight this war at that cost in the hope that you can break the Russian armies? There doesn't seem to be that voice. However, within society, though publicly most people are very supportive of the war, which is a war against Russian aggression, yeah. no one should be of any mistake with that. But you do get an awful lot of people trying to dodge the draft. I mean, it's been highlighted a bit by recent corruption scandals, quite how many young Ukrainian men were prepared to pay a significant amount of money in order to get you know, medical mm. certificates faked so they wouldn't have to join the military. Quite how many young Ukrainian men tried to get abroad by hook or by crook so they wouldn't be called up and sent off the front. Universities now have got some record attendance because if you're a mature student and you're actually taking part physically, studying, doing your course to a second or third degree, you might not get called up. So there's an awful lot of people who don't want to go to the front. doesn't mean they don't support the war. It's more a personal choice. They are often born out of straight up fear. They've seen a lot of people go off the front and an awful lot come back in coffins. So it's mixed, but it is definitely more somber. And, and a lot of this is sort of, has even sort of started to affect people you know out there. Oh, sure. And I often ask soldiers who are serving on the front, hey, how do you feel about those who don't want to get called up and all the rest of it? And it's mixed responses. The guys on the front, some of them will say, yeah, screw them. How come it's us fighting and dying? And there are still 
you know, golden boy disco kings. That's how <laughs> golden boy disco kings driving around and partying in their fast cars and dodging the draft. Well, it's us here. They should be sent here too. And others are much more circumspect and say, hey, it's a terrible war. It places a lot of demands on you. And they, they didn't feel that angry towards those who, um, who didn't want to go. But I had a really interesting conversation just a couple of nights ago with a good friend of mine in Keith. This is a guy who's in his late 20s, quite a lanky guy. He has no military experience at all and would not be a natural soldier at all. He's a photographer friend. And I was asking him, hey, man, you know, have they called you up yet? And he said, yeah, yeah, they have. In fact, by the next time you come back here and just in a few weeks i'll be um in the army and uh i said to him were you tempted to try and dodge it and he said look i don't, I don't want to be a soldier i don't want to fight in a war but this is my country's fight for survival and this is what i should do and i felt tremendous respect for that answer wow. i think that answer reflects the views of a lot of men in Ukraine right now. They, don't want to, they didn't want to fight in a war, they didn't want to be a soldier, but it was visited on them. They recognized that there is an existential struggle for their country, and it is time to go to fight. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, war correspondent for The Times, Anthony Lloyd. If you're a subscriber, you can read all of Anthony's latest dispatches from the front line at thetimes.co.uk. This episode was produced by Taryn Siegel. The executive producers were James Shield and Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you can, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Tomorrow.